Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. As the Hub City Church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining our serve teams, community groups, or men's and women's ministries, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Every year we come together as a church family to share Thanksgiving and the gospel with some of the people in Crestview who we know need it most. If you'd like to serve our community in this way, there will be an interest and logistics meeting today, immediately following service, where we will lay out all the full plan as well as how you can be involved in various capacities. We hope you'll join us for that. God has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. guys, good morning again. My name is Tad Anderson. I am the lead teaching pastor of the Hub City Church, and we welcome you. We're so glad you're here this morning to worship Christ uh, with us. I have a, a few things that I, I want to uh, say before we get into the Word this morning. Um, man, the first thing is, man, worship was so good. Thank you, band. Thank you, production team. Thank you, guys, for that. Wasn't that great? I mean, gosh, I could just keep going. So, yeah. They, they work hard every week in rehearsal, and they're, they're here during the week doing that, and they're working on song selection, making sure all these things are tied together to um, the, the message that we're, we're, we're bringing from the Word, and so really thankful for them and all that they do. Um, uh, the second thing is I also want to celebrate our men's camping trip. So yeah, that was really great. Yeah, it was a success. It was wet. Um, <laughs> here's before it was wet, so that was cool, but, and then there it's dark and not wet yet, and then... Uh, then it was wet, so you can tell we're like under the tent. <laughs> but uh, man, thanks to all the guys who came out. It really was a wonderful time of uh, fellowship, and um, yeah, we heard from Lewis Miller a great word on uh, acting like men, doing all things in love, and uh, had some good time to um, pray together. It was really, really good. So thanks to all who came out. Thanks to all who who served too, and just jumped in and made it made it work. We had to kind of pull a lot of things together with the tents and the pop-ups to try and stay as dry as we could, but it was, uh, it was fun. And we ate some good food, too, a lot of, a lot of meat. So uh, anyway, but all right. Uh, the, the next thing is uh, our Thanksgiving outreach is coming up. That's the final event on our fall schedule. Uh, and so I'm just going to tell you really briefly, uh, it, this year, it's, it's interesting. It has kind of three phases. Um, the, the first one is in conjunction with Northwood Elementary. So they have allowed us this year to um, pack Thanksgiving boxes, uh, meals that these families can prepare for themselves because they would like to be able to do that, though they may not have the means to compile all the stuff. So we're going to uh, do that. These are some of the families that we serve through the backpack program. Uh, so they are in food insufficient homes. But anyway, I think there's six total boxes, right, Amy? Um, and we do have, we are in need. Uh, last week, Almost everybody you know, filled those slots, but uh, we do have one more slot. If you'd like to pack one of those uh, Thanksgiving boxes, we uh, would love for you to do that. Uh, my wife, Amy, can give you all the information uh, on that. Um, yeah, I think that's it for that, that piece of it. The, the second piece is kind of the thing that we, that like kind of the central point of, of the Thanksgiving uh, outreach. It's going to be uh, serving folks downtown um, on Wednesday the 22nd from 3 to 5 p.m. So uh, the heart behind this has always been, you know, as a church, man, we're believers. Like, we have the gospel. Uh, we, got, we have Thanksgiving every week, okay? Like, <laughs> we love the holiday, but, you know, we don't need a holiday. 
uh, to give thanksgiving uh, to the Lord. And so, but there are people in our, in our town here, um, not so far away, uh, who, who don't have the means to have a thanksgiving uh, meal and, so, and who also don't have the gospel. Uh, and so our heart is to give thanksgiving and the gospel um, to those in our community who, who really need it, the needy. Um, and so that's what we're going to do downtown. Um, I think it's on Wilson Street there, but there's a thrifty store. And so uh, we've got it all worked out logistically. We'll kind of, this year we're going to do something different. We used to serve meals here at the building, but uh, that just wasn't as effective. And so we're going to do that actually downtown, like on the street there. Uh, and so we're advertising for that. We've got flyers and everything and signs we're going to put out. Um, we'll have a food line and we'll just pack meals and we'll get into conversations with people about uh, about Jesus and, and the gospel. So if that sounds good to you, we'd love to have you um, jump in on that with us. And then the, the third phase of this Thanksgiving outreach this year, we also do uh, ministry with uh, the Crestview Manor here in town. And uh, Brendan Wilson uh, and Yvette Beam really, um, man, they, they head that up and they, uh, Brendan works at the manor. And so uh, he's got a great connection with all the residents there and everything. And so last year we were able to serve about 50, I think 50 meals uh, there as well. And uh, we're going to do that again this year. And we're actually going to do that on Thanksgiving Day. I think we'll do lunch on the, on the 23rd. And so we do need people to uh, sign up for that as well. If you're interested, we need, uh, for all this, we need food preppers. We need uh, people to pack meals, serve meals, people who uh, just want to engage others with the gospel. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of this in any way that you're able to. If you can do it all, great. Come on, do it all with us. If you can do a part of it, that's okay too. Um, every year we have upwards of like 35 volunteers to pull this off, and we need that. <laughs> we need that to serve, you know, um, you know, 250, 300 meals. We need um, the church to come together. We need the body of Christ to come together and serve for that. So uh, we do have an interest meeting today, uh, right after the service, uh, and we'll do that in the multi-purpose room. So once all the kids get picked up, we'll just head over there, um, and we'll we'll meet in there. We'll talk um, logistics. If you have questions about how you can be a part, we'll do our best to answer that. Let you know a little more detail. Because um, there is a lot of detail to it to pull off something like this. So hope you'll join us for that. Join us for the interest meeting. Don't leave. Uh, we'll, we'll be here today for that. All right. Well, we are in uh, a teaching series based out of the book of Genesis called That's Messed Up. Uh, we're jumping from person to person throughout the narrative of the first book of Scripture in order to highlight the mess uh, that their sin made uh, in their lives. But um, let me just tell you, it's not because you know, we're trying to be really negative or uh, masochistic, but because the Bible, and primarily Jesus, teaches us that there is great benefit to being honest about uh, and, and understanding our, our sin. The benefit is that if we really understand and grasp and are honest about our sin, it will cause us to cherish the gospel, to cherish Christ. Uh, if we understand how desperately we need to be rescued from the punishment uh, of our sin, then we will love and never grow tired of the wonderful news of Jesus living a perfect life for us, dying and atoning death on the cross on our behalf and being uh, resurrected to give us the hope of redemption. This is why, you know, we sing the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. How does that song go? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. If you see yourself as a good person, a morally superior person, a person who always does what is right, Amazing Grace will be a really weird song for you, right? Because the Bible says you're blind. Your self-estimation is far too high. But if you grasp who you are apart from a Savior, a sinful, wretched, rebellious enemy of God who needs the grace of God day in and day out, then the gospel message of amazing grace, it won't sound weird to you. It will sound so beautiful that it may be tough to sing the words without tears <laughs> because you know that you've been forgiven for so much and thus you love Jesus much. So I hope 
I sincerely hope that that will be the cumulative effect of this series on sin and redemption, that we all might love Jesus much. Uh, But anyhow, this morning we're going to talk about Rachel and Leah, two sisters who unfortunately married the same man at the same time. So uh, even if you don't know the story, (laughs) I'll read it to you, but you can probably already tell it's pretty messed up, okay? Um, So let me read you a snippet of it. There's a lot of verses I'm going to read, so just stay with me here. We've got to understand the context, what happens in order to talk about it. So uh, I'm going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 29, uh, verse 13, and I'm going to read up through um, chapter 30, almost to the end. So it says, uh, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, He ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him to her servant so, sorry. so she gave, her, gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has, has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she looked to her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's, son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes too? 
Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Pretty messed up, right? Okay. (laughs) It's all messed up. So uh, he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the amazing grace of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, you loved us and determined to make a way for us to be redeemed, saved from the rightful, wrathful punishment that we deserved. In Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we now have in him, hope of eternal life, but also joyful, fulfilled living within the realm of your blessing and our true purpose now in this life. But Lord, now as we turn to your word once again, my prayer, God, is that our church family would not be weighed down by multiple sermons in a row about sin, but instead that we would be helped to see our need more and more clearly humbled and drawn into you to a life of ongoing repentance that leads to greater growth and holiness. Not just mouths that profess Christ, but lives that reflect his perfect loving character to those in our sphere of influence. Father, I know this sermon today can be a tough one again. So God, please, please be with me and help me to speak the words you would have me to speak. Keep me on the track I should be on by your spirit and for the service and help of the men and women who are here. Help me to be faithful and clear for your glory, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are mighty to save and You're mighty to sanctify. It's in your name, with the hope of these things, that I pray. Amen. All right. Well, that took a lot of time, so let's not waste any time um, here, because we've got a lot to discuss and not enough time to discuss it in. There are many issues in this section of Scripture, aren't there? Uh, The manipulation and the deception of Jacob by Laban. I could have preached a sermon on that. Uh, Jacob's desperate desire for a wife to fulfill him, which could play into our talk some. But what I want uh, to talk mainly about is uh, what is central, I think, to the section of verses that we've just read. Namely, this weird baby battle between sisters who unfortunately had become sister wives if you will. No need to watch that show, friends. It's right here in Scripture, okay? Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> you're laughing because you watch it. Anyway, which uh, we, addre- <laughs> we address this in the sermon on family dysfunction, and so it goes without saying, polygamy is just never a good idea, but also trying to do family in ways that God does not condone in general is going to wind up making things very challenging for everyone. So feel free and go, and go back to listen to that message if you missed it on family dysfunction. But again, today, I uh, just want to isolate the issue of this kind of back-and-forth competition between Rachel and Leah, this fertility feud they were, where they were vying for dominance in a contest that they never should have been in. The sins that we'll define and dig into here are the sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory. So as always, let me give you kind of an overarching principle, and then we will break it down, okay? Um, Here's here's the, the big idea. The idolatrous sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory are birthed, are birthed when we attempt to contrive our own redemption by attaining a certain blessing or status, okay? 
Let's talk about this. Let's pull it apart. So first of all, what we see going down between Rachel and Leah, it is the result of idolatry. Okay? It is the result of idolatry. We, we've talked about idolatry many times. It's just the idea of putting something uh, other than God into the utmost place of our affections. While God's design for human beings is for him to sit on the throne of our hearts, so to speak, idolatry is when we put anything else on that throne instead because we love it, we want it, and we think that we need it to a godlike degree. Okay, we've talked about this. You guys remember we've talked about idolatry a lot. And so this is what uh, hopefully you can see. This is what both Rachel and Leah got caught up in. Though the initial circumstance may not have been fully their fault, right? They were manipulated, they were used by Laban and Jacob. Right? So that was not their fault, but this became the impetus for sin that was their fault. Now, this is often how it goes in our lives, isn't it? We try to excuse our sin because something bad has happened to us. And we try to act like it's not our fault. It's not my fault. I cheated. My spouse was mistreating me. It's not my fault I stole. I was struggling to make ends meet. It's not my fault I lied. It was a complicated situation. And so what we see about ourselves when we sin under the pressure of, the, the pressure of trials is that the, the truth really was we actually wanted something other than God. And the difficulty that we went through served to expose that idol. Okay. You see, let, let's go back to the hypothetical example of um, cheating justified by the mistreatment of a spouse. A faithful believer, when they are mistreated by their spouse, turns to God because God is the only one that they truly worship and the only one who they know can help with their marriage issues. On the other hand, if our reaction is to cheat on our spouse because they're not treating us well, then what that shows us is that we have another God. Sex is really our God. Or the comfort of physical intimacy we've made into a God. Or maybe just the, the affirmation of other people is our God. So you see, there, there's always idolatry behind sin. This is why the first of the Ten Commandments, God says, is what? Do you know? Have no other gods before me. If we're really going to have a keen understanding of our sinfulness and thus have any hope of putting it to death, we have to understand what our idols are. You see, idolatry is so fundamental to the human sin problem, it's not a question of if we have idols. It's a question of which idols we tend to set up and worship. We said this earlier in the series. Sin is a worship malfunction. Sin is a worship malfunction. To sin is inherently to worship something other than God. So hopefully that this helps you uh, to, to understand what idolatry is and, and how intricately woven into uh, the fabric of sin idolatry is. When we worship idols, we sin. And when we sin, we worship idols. Do you see that? I need you to get that because um, you need to understand this connection uh, in order to move on to what we're going to talk about next. Okay? It goes deeper. Um, as human beings, we have a hardwired desire to be validated 
to be approved, to be loved, and, and so forth. The validation and approval and love that we need is meant to come from God. That's the design. That was his design, right? As his image bearers, God is supposed to be the source of our value, okay? And so here is what's happening when we sin. We're saying, probably without verbalizing it, I don't feel validated. I don't feel approved. Or I don't feel loved like I think I'm supposed to. And so I need to be vindicated. I need to be redeemed. I need to be redeemed from this terrible feeling of emptiness and worthlessness inside of me. And so we attempt, through the sin of idolatry, to contrive our own redemption. Stay with me. Here's what we say. When we try to contrive our own redemption, here's what we say. We say, if I could just have a wife, if I could just have a husband, if I could just have a spouse who really loves me, or if I could just have children, or if I could just have that job, or that salary, or that reputation, or that lifestyle, if I could just attain that certain blessing or status, if only, then I would really be fulfilled. Then I would really be someone. Then I'll I'll really have made something of myself. Then my life will really have meaning and I can be happy. These are the lies that idolaters believe that we believe. That we believe. Even if subconsciously, when we worship idols, we believe that something or someone other than God, some blessing, some status, will give us the truest, deepest longing of our hearts. And this was how Rachel and Leah got into their sinful birthing competition. Do you see that? (laughs) They were put into a position where they had to marry the same man, And so things were far from ideal. But Leah, who scripture tells us was less than attractive, saw Rachel's beauty and she thought, if I could just make Jacob love me like he loves Rachel, then what? Then I would be redeemed. And Rachel, who it says was barren, saw Leah's fertility and thought, if I could just have the status of motherhood like Leah then I would be redeemed. And so babies became what these ladies believed were the means to the end of their fulfillment. And the idols underneath it all were the blessing of children and the status of motherhood. Now, I'm sure many of you are beginning to see how envy, rivalry, and vainglory come into this picture, right? Envy, rivalry, vainglory are just some of the sinful fruits that grow on the idolatry. Dad joke, sorry. I couldn't help myself. Sorry, Amy wishes I wouldn't have done that. Anyway, let, let me just, let me read. Let me, she's like, you're not funny. Stop trying to be funny. Anyway, okay. Let me, let me read the main idea to you again. Um, The idolatrous sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory are birthed when we attempt to contrive our own redemption by attaining a certain blessing or status. So so here it is plainly, right? When we feel disappointed 
We're feeling disappointed and dejected because we don't have the blessings or the status that we think we need in order to be fulfilled. The result is when we see others who have those blessings or status, our perception is skewed. And we see them not as a brother, a sister, or a friend. We see them as a competitor, a contender, maybe even an opponent who is standing in the way of what we think we deserve. Friends, as believers, envy, rivalry, and vainglory can be tough to spot because usually when we're in the throes of those particular sins, we're feeling down on ourselves. We're feeling down on ourselves. We're feeling like life isn't really going the way that we wanted or expected. We get into kind of this um, victim-like mentality, this woe-is-me mentality that numbs us from the sense that perhaps we ourselves could be in sin. Right? Listen to how the late Christian counselor David Pallison articulates this. He said, have you noticed that even people who feel lousy about themselves are judgmental towards others? When you feel inferior to others, you don't respect them or treat them with mercy. Instead, you envy, hate, grumble, and criticize. Even self-belittling tendencies, low self-esteem, self-pity, self-hatred, timidity, fears of failure and rejection, these fundamentally express pride, failing, pride, intimidated, and pride, despairing. Such pride, even when much battered, still finds someone else to look down on. See, usually we think of pride as loud and pompous. But actually, pride can take on different expressions. Pride can be expressed via disappointment. And even some people who would describe themselves as feeling depressed are often frustrated and down in the dumps, not because they have some true mental health issue or chemical imbalance, but because of their own pride, their own pride. You see, it's in the word disappointed disappointed. God has not ordained or appointed their circumstances as they think he should have or as they think they deserve. So they're downcast. They're disappointed. So pride doesn't have to be loud and pompous. It can be solemn or it can be muttered under the breath as well. And it's important that you understand this because it's this kind of idolatrous, downcast pride attempting to contrive its own redemption that tends to spin off these ugly sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory. Um, maybe these sins don't sound quite as bad at face value, as some of the other sins we've discussed. But in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul places jealousy and rivalries right next to idolatry, sexual immorality, and sorcery in a list of works of the flesh that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they seem pretty serious to me. And in Philippians 1, Paul says, some indeed Preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So again, envy, rivalry, and vainglory are often very sneaky, very subtle, and yet very sinister. Let's talk about each one. Envy, I've called simply, coveting the blessings of others, coveting the blessings of others. 
That is, desiring the blessings of others for yourself. And you know, let me just say here, it's, it's not wrong to necessarily desire good things. It's not wrong to desire good things. It's not wrong to want, let's say, a good marriage or a good job. Or, or you, you fill in the blank with something that's good, a blessing, right? But here's what envy does. Envy sees the blessings of others that it doesn't have. And because it can't have the same thing, it's a very childish vice, envy, In discontentment, envy refuses to be happy for or celebrate good in the lives of others. Someone gets a promotion, a raise, a wonderful opportunity, a fun family vacation, or things are just going well for someone else in their life. And instead of thinking, man, good for them. Praise God. That's so great. You think, whatever. That should be me. I'm a harder worker than them. I don't get anything for it. I deserve that and better. One person said, envy is frustrated self-exaltation. Upset that someone else is having something go well. Envy is secretly resentful and bitter when it sees the talent or the skills or the accolades of others because it wants them and it doesn't perceive itself to have them in the same degree or more. 1 Corinthians 13, you know this, speaks about love. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, true love for others wants good for and is glad when good things happen to others. Right? But envy suffocates love. It suffocates love. We see this in Genesis 30 with Rachel and Leah, don't we? Genesis 30, verse 1, and Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Or I shall die. Translation, if I can't have the status that she has, life is not even worth living. You know what's interesting? In my my years pastoring, I hear a lot of confession of sin, as you might imagine. I almost never hear a confession of envy. And yet, based on Scripture, it seems like a pretty prevalent sin. I think it's because, if we're honest, we all know that we have been eaten up by the green-eyed monster of envy, at least on occasion, and it's a really icky sin. That's the best word I can come up with. It's icky, isn't it? Because of how it causes us inwardly to think so negatively of others without their knowing it, and honestly, a lot of times without their deserving it. But let's move on to rivalry. Rivalry often proceeds forth from envy. In our discontentment of not having the blessing or status of others that we so desperately crave, we decide that we'll, we'll come up with our own ways to be better. We'll be better. Rivalry is competing for superiority over others. Competing for superiority over others. Uh, this is why both Rachel and Leah determine to give their maidservants to Jacob so that he can have children with them as well. It was a race to see who could have the most children with Jacob and be the top wife, the top mother. When she has Reuben, Leah says, now my husband will love me 
Then when she has Levi, she says, now he'll be attached to me because we have three sons. And then she says it when she has six sons, she keeps hoping for that, longing for that. Then when Leah asks for some of the mandrakes that Reuben found, Rachel says, oh, first you take my man, now you try and take my mandrakes. Sorry, that's my translation. I can, but you can feel it. You can feel that attitude in the text, seriously. Read it yourself. It's there. And then, really sickening, she agrees to give Leah the mandrakes if she can sleep with Jacob that night. Apparently, mandrakes are believed to have aphrodisiac or fertility-increasing Qualities. So you, you get the picture here. Two sisters who should have loved one another and wanted the best for each other, talking down to each other and stepping on each other, trying to get ahead, trying to show themselves as superior to, greater than the other. We hear about this in the epistle from James, the brother of Jesus. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sadly, church, we don't have to be in a polygamous love triangle for these kinds of things to happen in our hearts. I've seen this happen just with people being in the same church body. Envy-fueled rivalries between brothers and sisters in Christ who just want to be seen as more mature or who covet attention, the praise of others, this is the spotlight. Brothers and sisters slighting one another leaving each other conveniently out of group texts, not inviting one another to unpublicized gatherings, all because they view each other as a threat to their own pride and their desire to be seen as superior, the better friend, the better disciple maker, the better servant, the better one at caring for others, the more thoughtful sister, the more insightful brother, the more you get it. This is rivalry. Very similar to Jesus' disciples constantly getting into squabbles over who's the greatest. Remember, this is where idolatry leads us. We want blessing. We want status. If only people would love us. If only we could have a position or a reputation that was admirable. So we attempt to contrive our own counterfeit redemption scenario. We try to curate our own image in the eyes of others where we emerge as someone really special who's the best at something. But the motives behind rivalrous idolatry are not pure. They're about our fulfilling our sinful, fleshly passions. And so even if quietly and secretly we fight against each other like a game of chess trying to get the upper hand, the same thing happens in biological families, between siblings, right? Workplaces, between team members, Oftentimes, the reason this kind of thing is able to thrive between believers where in their rivalry, they're comparing and, and sizing one another up is because they have forgotten that the goal is not, like the world thinks, to look better than one another for the sake of their own pride. Our goal, church, is to strive to look more and more like Christ. He's the bar, not our brothers and sisters. We want to look more like Christ for the glory of God. We're not trying to look better than one another 
for the glory of ourselves. And that leads to the final sin category, vainglory. Vainglory defined as conflating self-exaltation with exaltation in the Lord. Um, This one is kind of the final state of a believer who is consumed with envy and rivalry because they have been so preoccupied with being the best or being seen as something special, they, they start to mix up their own status with the glory of God. We see this happen back and forth with, with Rachel and Leah. Every time they would have another son, though they were so clearly engulfed in idolatry and, and looking to their own fertility for their value and their worth, they would praise God when they would move ahead in the baby race. This is what I'm calling vainglory. It's where God actually becomes the means to the end of your glory instead of the other way around. And so if you're consumed with vainglory, your praise of God, your happiness, your contentment, it rises and it falls on whether or not you perceive him to be making much of you, giving you success, making things go in your favor so that you can exalt yourself and look great. This is a very ugly and twisted thing that can really have religious people in particular deceived because they think they're praising God. They've got it conflated. They they think they're praising God, but their praise of God is really self-centered celebration that God has allowed something good that benefits their idolatry. This is very closely related to the prosperity gospel. The mindset is the same. I do great things for God so that God will make me look great in the eyes of others. Whereas the mindset of faithful disciples is God is great. And I strive to do all that I do for his greatness to be displayed, not mine. People who are living in the sin of vainglory, they love to hear their name (laughs) praised. They love to be seen as righteous like the Pharisees who love to pray big, long prayers in front of others, who love the seat of honor, we're told, in the assembly, who, who love the greetings in the marketplace. People who are living for the glory of God, they don't feel comfortable with too much praise. They want Jesus to be seen as righteous, not themselves. They're content with their father seeing and hearing and rewarding them in secret. So they don't need the affirmation of others to feel special. Once again, James speaks to this strongly. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. So these are the idolatrous sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory. If, if you see yourself in, in any of these, as with each week thus far, I, I know that can be challenging. But let's take a turn now in our discussion to the way of repentance, the defeat of envy, rivalry, and vainglory. Three things that work to defeat envy, rivalry, and and vainglory with with one general principle um, here on the front end. Here's the general one. This applies to this week's sermon, but really this applies to all of the the sermons on the various categories of sin that we've covered in this series. You ready for it? Pray for eyes to see your own mess. Pray for eyes to see your own mess. 
had a friend text me the other day about one of the sermons in this series on sin, and my response to him was this. Confess to you guys as well. Personal experience has been a helpful and humbling guide in detailing the mess of sin. Here's what I mean. While it's been difficult in some regards to preach sermons on sin week in and week out for multiple weeks because it's a, it's a weighty topic, I know that. It's, just, it's difficult because it's weighty. On the other hand, it's been rather easy because when it comes to sin, I'm professional. I'm a professional. Through the years, it has been a painful, but I have learned a gracious and merciful thing for the Lord to show Tad his brand of sin, his brand of wickedness, his brand of pride. It's a gracious thing for God to do that with us because you see, here's the thing. We can't grow spiritually if we can't see where we're messing up and falling short. This is why there are so many places in Scripture where sin is detailed, but also where we're encouraged to press into understanding the types of sin and idolatry that we personally wrestle with the most. In Psalm 19, it says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. God. Psalm 90 says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We may hide our sin from others. We may even hide our sins from ourselves, but there are no secret sins with God. They are in the light of his presence. He sees them. In Job 34, 32, it says, teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Now, in this context of Job, this is a man named Elihu asking if anyone has asked that of God. Has anyone asked that of God? Has anyone said to God, show me what I don't see? If I've sinned, tell me so that I can stop. Church, we should pray that. We should pray that. That the Lord would teach us concerning the convoluted, entangled webs of sin that we weave and that are like a spider web in the sense that they're translucent unless we're, we see them at the right angle with light refracting through them just right. We should pray as hard as it is for God to turn our heads and shine the light on our sin so that we can war against it and resolve by grace-driven effort to be done with it. So that's the first general principle about these sins we're talking about, but all sin. We ought to pray for eyes to see our own mess. But here's the first one that pertains to the defeat of the idolatrous sins of envy, rivalry, and vainglory. Believe. Believe. You have been given all the worth and all the love that you could ever need in Christ. Ron, where are you at? You've been given all the worth and love that you could ever need in Christ. Church, this is the ironclad promise we need to decimate our envy and our rivalry. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life for you. God the Father, we're told, so loved you, he gave up his only Son to rescue you out of your sin. There's no greater worth to be found than that. Thank you, Josh, for that song we sang. There is no greater love. There is no greater love to be found than that. Dear Christian, what in the world, literally, what in the world could we possibly have to envy in the life of anyone else? 
We've been given, Ephesians tells us, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your sin washed away forever. The eternal wrath of God absorbed and appeased by Christ on the cross turned away from you. No wrath for you. Your relationship with God reconciled and restored. Eternal life in the fullness of peace and joy awaiting you as your inheritance. No idol can offer you that. No idol can offer you that kind of blessing or that kind of status because there is no higher blessing or status than that that we are given in Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What could we have to compete with anyone over? Friends, Christ has secured for us everything. Why attempt to contrive some pitiful counterfeit redemption of our own where we're seen as something by the world? Who cares? Who cares? We've been adopted as children of God. There's no more need to work and labor to bring about significance or fulfillment in our lives on our own. In Christ, we find our significance as his image bearers, as his ambassadors, priests of his kingdom. And in Christ, we are fulfilled by the privilege, get this, of being friends of the king. Friends of the king. Spouse, children, career, salary, these are all good things, but they pale. They are nothing in comparison to having Jesus. To envy when we've been given these unfathomably good things is to have gospel amnesia. It's to forget that no one has more than someone who has Jesus. No one has more than someone who has Jesus. If we have Jesus, what's it say on the front of our building? (laughs) We have everything. Jesus is everything. So, you want to defeat the sin of envy? I do. Far be it from us. You want to defeat the sin of envy? Believe this. You've been given all the worth and all the love that you could ever have in Christ. In Christ. I could end it there, but here's number two. We need this one too. Give all glory to God for the good in your life. Give all glory to God for the good in your life. Let me string a few passages together to form this principle here. James 1.17, every good gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift we have is from God. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So let's mash these verses together. Everything good in our lives comes from God. And if there are good things in our lives to think about, which there are, Think about them. (laughs) Think about them. There are things worth giving praise to God for. Do it. This isn't rocket science. Look around at your life. See your spouse if you have a spouse. See your kids if you have kids. See your job if you have a job. See your church. See your house. See the clothes on your back. See the food on your table. On top of all the spiritual blessings we've already discussed, and be grateful to God. 
and seek to glorify him with it all. That's it. That's the whole point of that point. If you'll stop and examine your life, you will see, friend, that God has been so incredibly good to you, to all of us, to all of us. As the perfect father, we're told he knows what we need before we even ask, and I'm willing to bet if you take stock of your life, you know he's given you all that and more. Not because you deserved it, just because he's generous and kind. In John 21, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter about his will for him. And Peter looks over and he says, what about John? <laughs> Read that part? What about John? And Jesus goes, Peter, look at me. Look at me, Peter. Worry about me and you, Peter, our relationship. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about John. What I have for John is between me and John. Right? I got plenty for you, Peter. <laughs> Jesus is saying that there. Guys, so often we get tangled up in envy and rivalry because we're being nosy. We're being nosy. We're being busybodies, looking around at others instead of tending to our own relationship with the Lord. The Lord divvies different gifts and different talents and different seasons and different responsibilities and different blessings and different, different trials to all of us as he sees fit. But regardless of how much of each of those that you've been given, we have a lot to be grateful for. We have a lot of glory to give to God. And we have a relationship with Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on that. Don't be looking around worried about what other people have. You have enough to deal with for yourself. A lot of good stuff. Amen? Amen. Let's focus on that. Let's be faithful with that. Give all glory to God for the good in your life. But finally, number three, rejoice for the good that you see in the lives of others. Rejoice for the good you see in the lives of others. Since we've been given everything in Christ, and since we've been lavishly showered with the goodness of God, our gratitude and joy in him should free us up to be happy when we see him doing the same thing for others. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 12 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. You know, I don't know that apart from this sermon that I would have drawn this conclusion. But rejoicing for others and the good that you see in their lives is such an important discipline for fighting against idolatry. Rejoicing for others fights idolatry. You see, idolatry is by nature self-centered. He wants to gratify and glorify self, not God. And so when we train ourselves over time to be content in Christ and to be genuinely happy for others as we see his grace at work in them, this is a great offensive attack on the idols of our hearts. Our honoring others, our humbly being willing to let others have the spotlight without desiring it for ourselves, this may seem really simple, but these things will deal the death blow to the sin of vainglory. Believe you have been given all the worth and all the love you could ever need in Christ. Give all glory to God for the good in your life and rejoice for the good that you see in the lives of others. Because the sins of envy, 
rivalry and vainglory. They will eat you alive. They'll eat you alive. And they have no place in the body of Christ. So let's pray that if we struggle with these, that the Lord would open our eyes to our mess, that we might repent and draw near to the throne of grace to find more grace in our time of need. Friends, if you struggle with all this mess, join the club. There's more grace. There's more grace for that. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, I, this was a hard sermon. This is a very hard sermon for me, and I don't know, maybe for others, but God, help us. Help us. Help us to truly desire to glorify you over all else. Help us to really believe the promises of the gospel, that Jesus is it for us. He's all we need. He's everything. He has given us all the worth, all the love. We're so loved by you, God. Help that to be enough for us so that we might not fight with each other and quarrel with each other. We might not envy our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we wouldn't set ourselves up as rivals against one another. We're family. We've been brought into your family, God. This is no way for us to look at and to treat one another. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, those of us who know we have sinned. Be gracious unto us, sinful people, God. Help us not to strive for the approval of others, for vain glory. Help us to truly strive for your glory above all else. It's in Jesus' beautiful, gracious name that we pray. Amen.